And her name's Jenny. J E N N Y. She's in London. Mm -hmm. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, one thing I seek um, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Let that be for all of us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life um, this day, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass, and your words to us, Father word, Father's words to um, strengthen us in our efforts to be one with you, um, to open ourselves to receive you, body and blood. You make it clear, very clear, even if some people don't hear you, um, that unless we eat you, and, and drink you, your, your body and blood, um, you will have no part of us. We won't be with you. We have to take you in. The Protestant world is so Gnostic, it lives in its head as if understanding, just knowing it, would be enough when it's not. Um, thank you again deeply for the gift of yourself that we can actually carry you within us physically, body and blood, and um, do that knowing um, that we are a part of you, your life, by doing that. Strengthen us in our efforts to give ourselves to that. Um, how hard it is in our age to make a place for miracles because we experience them daily. Um, help us not to take them for granted. It's so easy to do as if it's so ordinary. We can look past it, think about it as, like, as if thinking about it were enough. Let that not happen for us. Um, you call us to holiness. Strengthen us in our efforts to answer you. Um, I ask a blessing on Jenny and her family, um, particularly those who love her, who um, will trouble um, over her choices and her openness or lack of it um, for help. Let them be consoled, um, um, be strengthened by your spirit, whether it comes in the form of a patience or even an anger, um, a good anger. Um, help them, help them to find the courage to do what they have to do. Um, go to Jenny, um, help her to open her heart um, to be honest about the help she needs. Um, and I ask a blessing, pardon me for this, but um, for myself um, to recover from these falls. Um, um, keep us all open to these texts. Um, you are the word. Um, um, help us to deepen our sight. Um, to find your words in the words of these artists that we're reading. Make them real in our own lives. We are grateful for all the many ways you speak to us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I made a vow to myself that we would get out of here quarter of 11 or 11 because I've been keeping you guys too late. So um, I'm going to rush. Um... <laughs>
think I'm forgetting something. I forgot two people in our parish that you and that's Scott. Oh, and, Scott. Yeah. Yep. Um, and also Karen. Karen. Let's take a second. With Ken, can we just return to prayers for a second? Um, um, watch over Scott. He's returned to the hospital here. Yeah. Watch over Scott. Surround him with your protection. Um, be with his wife. Um, Scott's got a good heart and he's tough. Um, let no harm come to him, please. Um, let him give himself to the healing that he needs um, and be with Karen. Um, help her in her recovery. She's in rehab now. Help her in her recovery from surgery. Let her hip heal well. Um, we live in a wounded world. Paul calls it groaning all the time. Whether it affects each of us immediately or indirectly in those we love. There's this great healing that we always need. Please offer it um, um, where we carry cares in our heart about those people um, that mean a lot to us, particularly loved ones. Um, again, we ask this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for doing that, Catherine. She's okay every once in a while. <laughs> Sometimes I think I should stop that, but I don't know that I can. <laughs> okay, let's start. Very quick review. Last week, um, wait, let me let me step back for a second. What? Wait, let me let me step back even farther. Sorry. I've been thinking a lot about this work that we're doing together for one major reason, and I can remember troubling over this when I began this because. Um, I was so aware of myself as a teacher at UD or any of the schools where I taught where my first aim would not be catechetical. Um, my aim, from as long as I can remember as a teacher, has been to do what Thomas talks about doing, to see the thing as it is. I, you, you know from me because you've been hearing me grouse about it all the time, how, how much I hate, genuinely hate, what people do with literature today. It's, it's just a cause of distress. When I look at the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and Shakespeare, all the stuff that I've been doing to, I think, I mean, I hope, I hope you've seen it, I hope I'm doing what I set out to do here, that, that we have intimations of Christ everywhere, even when he's not visibly present, he's there in the ancient epics. You know, in the, like the Perusia action, the return of the king, the glory attending those men, again and again and again, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. How did that happen? Um, so the fact that it's there and teachers uniformly miss it, even Catholic teachers. I mean, UD's a Catholic university. I, I've not heard anybody speak except one teacher, Louise Callan, who spoke to some of these things. Um, when I think about the, the great thing that these works of literature are doing and what people do to them, if you're a feminist, a Marxist, a Freudian, 
gender studies. I mean, they rip these things apart and they make them something they're not. So this whole question of reading, as you know, for me, is more than a little serious. Um, and so that's been a concern of mine from the beginning. When we started Faulkner, I, I felt the same concern returning because we, we started in a pagan world and moved into a Christian world with Dante and Shakespeare. And I think we're in a Christian world with Faulkner, but Faulkner is a modern. So we're reading works that aren't explicitly Christian, and we're reading works at a time when, for the most part, most people believe God's dead. So one of the concerns for me in this group is our, our first purpose here is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. Um, I don't want to teach this. I don't want to do this if we're not doing that. That's how serious I feel about it. So it's a serious question for me. So the last couple of weeks I've asked you this question. Um, it, can we find Christ in writing? Not just characters. And um, I went back and reread Gerard Manley Hopkins' The Wind Hover. Didn't I do it with this group last mm -hmm. week? The Wind Hover and Kingfishes Catch Fire. Because clearly in those books, like um, Supernatural Love, you know, the, the, the young four-year-old pricking herself, we find Christ in those poems. In the, in the images describe a bird, Kingfisher, the, the stone. Um, we haven't quite found him in writing. One of the reasons for doing the wreck of the Dutchland is because we are. It's going to be central there. But I've been raising this question. Um, Christ is the word. He's the means of creation. We should be able to find images of him everywhere in creation, not just people. It matters more in people because as, as humans who are made in the image of God, um, we carry more of God, potentially more of God in us. Right? So potentially, theoretically, we can reveal him more than a kingfisher, a bird, a fire. Right? The, the question, it seems to me a pretty serious question, all of us should be wrestling with is, are we bringing Christ to people? Do people see him in us? Um, do we carry him? Um, it seems to me one reason for not taking the Eucharist is because it makes it easier not to take that seriously. Father was pretty clear about it this morning. You take the Eucharist, you're in a state of grace. Ask yourself, are you in a state of grace? I've got to ask him something about that because I was... Anyway, um, if we take him, um, it increases our burden. One of the central themes of Wreck of the Deutschland is this instressing of God. And he said, it increased, when he, there's that line that I read last week, when we look at heaven and contemplate heaven, we can contemplate this bliss. What a nice, you know, we want to have everything nice. To contemplate Christ almost obliterates that. To contemplate Christ means going to a cross. In stressing there, it takes us to the crucifixion. So, um, But this question, can we find him in the writing, not just the characters, and I mean that, because, and I... I, one of the questions that I asked you guys after we did um, Fire on the Hearth, take a look at the way Hollywood treats couples, a man and a wife, and take a look at the way Faulkner dealt with um, Lucas and uh, Molly. Take a look at Ryder and Manny. You know, take a look at Buck and Buddy. I mean, they're, they're 
it's not a homosexual cult, they're men, they're brothers, but, but one is the wife figure, the feminine figure, one, you know. When we look at Faulkner's treatment of human relationships and set it next to Hollywood, what do we see? Um, and I suggested that very often in Hollywood we'll get something either cynical or sentimental. That it'll either be darkened and the worst things are shown and that's the way it'll be left because humans can't do any better than that. Or it'll be sentimentalized. Everything will be sweet, everything will be nice. Um, Faulkner doesn't do that. The, the closest he gets to that is The Reavers, which may be our last book together. And even there, I, I, I myself wouldn't call it a sentimentalized ending, even though it's wonderfully happy. You know? uh, one of the great things that Faulkner does is he helps us to enter into these relationships, shows us the burdens that people carry, so he shows us, helps render the cost of love. And my belief has always been good art is only good insofar as it helps us experience the cost of love because the cost of love is never easy. It's a, it's a crucifixion. When couples marry in, in our day, they, you know, they are encouraged to have all these great romantic feelings about they're going to have, they're going to have this sweet life. As soon as they start encountering each other's sins, they run away. The good writer is the one who shows people dealing with these horrible burdens and the cost of them and what they can come to if they do. And Faulkner did it with Lucas. I mean, we can, we won't lack for any criticisms of him. I mean, there's, it's so easy to find fault with him. I mean, there's almost nothing he does right. You know, but at the very end, um, he, after stubbornly refusing to let go of that machine, he finally comes to the court and says, there will be no, there will be no voice. And then he goes and buys that little bag of candy. Doesn't seem like much. But if we look at Lucas as a man and who he is, that is not a small gesture. So Faulkner never sentimentalizes. He never just manipulates his characters so that they're a soundboard for an ideology or a faith, which I think is one of the problems with fundamentalist movies. And they become sounding boards. They don't, they don't enter into the burdens. In this work that we've done together, we can't say that. I mean, in Moby Dick, it seems to me we entered into a, um, don't take any of our food. Oh, I'll bring it back. <laughs> Phil, full. You bring it back full. Good. <laughs> That's ours. <laughs> now, you cannot trust. Who can you trust in this world? Certainly not Catholics. Um, um, Moby Dick took us into the depths. Dante took us into the depths. You know, and, um, but brought us out with Ishmael and surviving and helping us to learn things. And Faulkner will take us into the depths. In fact, we're going to the depths in the bear. But anyway, the, the, the question that I asked that I'm really asking you to wrestle with is, can we find Christ in language or the medium of arts? It could be painting, it could be music. Can we find him? Can we, I'm, I'm asking this really serious. How many people listen to music asking, do I hear Christ there? I mean, somebody think you're nuts. I'm asking it. Can we find him in this writing? Not just in the people, yes, but in the form, the action, what's happening and what he's doing with words, okay? One of the things I went back to last week was um, this notion of subjectivity that 
Remember that the poetry is, particularly literature, um, is distinct as a work of art because it, it, it gives us images with which to see things, but it also has a movement and action like music. Literature can take us into the interior of people. It can go into the subjectivity. So one of the kinds of knowledge literature gives us is knowledge by subjectivity, or Thomas called it, not thinking about poetry, Thomas called it knowledge by connaturality, by sympathy, and it's a, it's a, it's a form of sympathy between a, a per, one person and another. Jacques Maritain called poetry a form of communion, a form of communion between the secret self of the poet and the secret self of things. So the inner life of Faulkner, all that's aroused in him when he works, his, does his work, to take us into the interior, the secret self of another thing. That was going on with Hopkins, with a bird, the wind hover. We, right, we, saw, we, we were helped to feel something about that bird most people don't feel. A fire, the farmer's plowing, the kingfisher, the stone going down a well. We had a sense that there's this interior to all things, and they spoke. Through language, um, is Faulkner doing that? Not just in the characters, but in the words he's using. So poetry makes us aware of this communion between the inner self of the poet and us as we stand with him and the things that he's rendering for us. Um, <clears throat> we saw in, in, in the opening stories, um, particularly um, Fire in the Heart and Pantaloons and Old People, um, that men are, are in some ways isolated. Lucas is isolated by his race. So is, so is Roth. And if you remember in the, in the, um, the flashback um, story of young Roth and Henry when they were boys, Remember that description, those passages when Faulkner's describing it, and they're all told from the point of view of these characters themselves. When the young boy decides one day um, not to sleep with Henry anymore, he, he just picks up and leaves, goes to his bed. Henry follows him, sort of docilely, and is surprised that he gets up in the bunk that for the first time he's sleeping above him. And he goes over to the bed and waits for him to move over, and he won't, and there's those um, painful, painful descriptions of, of um, Roth determined not to move. And those descriptions, any, any, and I'm, it's one of my passages exactly here, I'll just I'll go through them in a minute. Where Faulkner describes it as, it's as if the old curse from the past descended, almost like a ghost descending on him. And he felt it that way. He's not frightened. It, it's like it's his inheritance. It's like it was expected to come. And once it comes, it's settled. It's in him. It's a part of him. It's like it's frozen. I mean, and, I, and I, 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 I look at that with such belief. The things that we inherit from our past, it can be drugs, alcohol, whatever, the trauma, you know, that that is somehow carried forward and becomes a part of us and fixed. Um, so we see, again and again, people who are isolated, um, and we learn to see um, that, that we become aware, 
that through this art, we're encouraged to see things differently, not the way other people see them. And that was particularly true in pantaloons and old, pe in old people, because remember, in pantaloons, after we get writer's story that we experience firsthand, we stand with the sheriff and the wife who can make no sense of them. And we're made aware of an irony that they have no clue what's going on in this man, even though we've been allowed to enter into his life. So Faulkner helps gets us past that wall, that barrier. Um, that's clear, yeah. That he, it's like he opens our hearts to, to see, um, in a way the sheriff and the wife, or the deputy and the wife do not. And, and moreover, to see how calloused and su superficial, how shallow. She, she was more concerned about having lost her prize at the bridge game earlier in the day, and she wants to get on to the movie. Th there's no sense that either one of them wants to sit down for a moment and take pains over this. The last thing they're going to do is take pains. Um, they just shut them out. So, um, in one sense, Faulkner helps break down that that wall of consciousness. And the same thing happens in the old people. Twice. We, we, I read those passages, remember, where in the opening passages where um, Ike kills the deer and runs because he's so excited and Sam slows him down and says, don't walk in front of him. And he comes up behind him and slits his throat and Sam dips his hand in the hot smoking blood and baptizes him, smears it all over him. And then at the end of the, and, and all of the, the, the middle part of that story from the beginning to the end, all has to do with what Sam is teaching Ike. So the, the, one of the most important themes that emerges here and that really is one of the central themes of the Bears education, absolutely at the heart of it. Sam is a great educator. You remember at the end of Old People, um, they go to their um, stand, the place that's set aside for the hunter. Um, and Walter and the other hunters are off by the ridge and it's assumed that the deer's gonna go that way. Ike's got an inferior stand because he's a boy. Um, and then they hear the rifle shot and then Faulkner gives us that extraordinary description of the, of the deer coming out of the sound of the horn. And if you remember, it was stately, slow, larger than life. And when we get there, we're going to see it's a little, just this little thing. But as he describes it, it's taller than a man. And it sees them. It's not afraid. It's not hurried. There's this stately spirit. And Ike is, their only word for this is beholding. He beholds it. He no longer looks at it with the eyes of a hunter. He's beholding it. The deer beholds them. And I, Sam is behind um, Ike, standing up now, and he holds up his hand and says, in, in respect, in acknowledgement of the, the spirit of the deer, Ole, grandfather. So Ike is being taught this reverence, and it's, the, the language, remember, was he was consecrated, absolved of fear, that, that Sam was teaching him to love the very life that he would take. So he wouldn't take it for trophies or honor to show that he was a great huntsman, even though being a good huntsman has meant everything to him. And then the story ends with the two of them arriving with um, Sam, or um, 
Walter Ewell over the little deer and calling Sam over and says, you know, look at these tracks. If there weren't another one here, I'd swear there were another deer here. The irony is sharpened then and deepened because we're made aware that they saw it and the, hunt, the hunters don't have a clue. So we become aware that people who think they understand things in some ways don't. That, that Sam, as an Indian who's much closer to nature, is helping Ike to see things about nature that even the hunters themselves don't know. Um, when, I, when I was thinking about these, these, these works that we would be doing this week, one of the thoughts that I had on the way to Monday night class was this, and I just want to just share this with you guys for a second. Because it goes to this troubling question that I have, that we're, we're entering the modern world and it's going to be harder and harder to find Christ in any explicit way. No writer, Dostoevsky deals with him explicitly. And to my mind, among the great writers, he's the only one to do it explicitly. Um, um, it'll be harder and harder for us to find him, so it's a concern for me. But here's one of the thoughts that I had, and it and it's it was one of the grounds, of one of the principles on 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 which I came into this, put this together for us. It's this: if you look at what Sam is doing with Ike, he's teaching this young boy to see things that other people don't. And in that sense, um, it seems to me it's really important for us as Catholics because we go through the world believing, seeing things that other people do not. So we should find a strength here, a support for faith, for our faith in the natural order that people today do not. Protestants don't have it because they look at the natural order as depraved, corrupted. We don't look at nature that way. So my hope here is that, is that we, in, in learning to see things in the way that these poets are, are revealing them to us, we find a support for our faith. That we know that there's something going on with reason that supports faith in a way that other people don't see. An agnostic is not going to see it because he thinks his faith or reason is the answer to everything. Faith belongs to people who are superstitious. So he won't have anything to do with it. The Protestant won't have anything to do with reason because it's untrustworthy. Is that clear? The agnostic's not going to have anything to do with faith because that belongs to a world of superstition. The Protestant's not going to have anything to do with reason because it's untrustworthy. It's the Catholic world that brings those two together. So it's a concern for me right now that if, if we go forward with Faulkner, one of the things we're going to have to do is we're going to have to look more deeply because it's not going to be conspicuous. We're not going to, Faulkner is not going to take us into a church and show somebody praying the rosary. It's not what he's going to show us. He's going to show us a pretty dark modern world. It's our world. Can we find Christ in it? Define so, Protestant. Hmm? Protestant. Who do you mean? Protestant. Protestant. What? Who does that include in your thinking? The, the by and large, except for the high... The, the Anglo-Catholic world, I mean, I think of the Protestant world as the broad liberal church and the fundamentalist church in America, broadly. I mean, Lutherans, Methodists? In, anybody, anybody that doesn't have a, whose view of, whose understanding of Christ is not sacramental. 
Luther's is sacramental, but we've already seen that even his notions of the um, Eucharist are are um, schismatic. You know, he think he believes in co-consubstantiation instead of transubstantiation, and so everything that's just below the high Anglican Catholic world, I I think of as Protestant. He, he, Anything in the Protestant world that doesn't make a full place and an orthodox place for the sacraments. Let me put it that way. The Protestant world by and large. Um, Luther and Calvin were alike in that sense. I mean, both of them looked at nature as depraved, uh, basically. So even though they were Catholic in sensibility, or Luther was. Okay. Um, I wanted to go through the works and times, but I'm not going to do it, but I, to give an overview of the frame. In one sense, that you, we've seen that, that, the, that the form of the story is what I've called um, um, asynchronic. Asynchronic in time. Um, it, synchronic means with time. Asynchronic means not with it. Um, because time keeps getting interrupted here. Um, the, the whole story, if we look at it now as we move, move through it, takes place from roughly 1850. Kaz is nine years old, so we know that he was born in 1850. So it's 1859 when the story opens. But the narrator is standing in our time. So he's looking back to a time when it all began, and he goes back to was because those were the conditions that produced Ike, because he knows if you're going to understand a character, you can never understand him in isolation. You have to see that character in the context of something larger than himself. The therapeutic schools, I, I think, are, have gotten wiser on that, that they understand that to really help a person, you have to see him in a larger context, the culture, his family, the past. So Faulkner takes us back to, to was so that we can see the beginnings, and we saw how comic they were. But we start in 1941, we go back to the um, Civil War period, and we learn that Buck and Buddy freed the slaves even before the Emancipation Proclamation. It came from the goodness of their heart. That's Ike's family. It goes to 1947, even though we never get past 1941 or two. And I'm saying 1947 because we learn in the story that Ike dies when he's 80. So we don't see him die, but we know he's going to die. So. So the story itself covers that time. But we see from the, the plot and that very often um, time is layered and, and events from the past keep interrupting. Um, there are these constant ruptures. The past keeps intruding itself. So that we see that from Faulkner's perspective, time is never scientific. It's never simply linear, one thing following another. And we know that. And, and I, I, th here's the best example. We can, I, I know this. I know it from our own family. I know it from families. You can be going along in your life thinking everything's fine, and then suddenly you discover your son's on drugs, or your son's drinking, or Aunt Sally left her husband. Um, or, you know, I mean, suddenly something from the past intrudes, and we didn't even see it, and it was there all along. So, so it's not like it suddenly came into existence here in, in Medius race. It was always there. We, di we didn't see. We, we didn't read well. 
we just don't read well. Faulkner's being faithful. He's, he's offering us a story that corresponds more truthfully, more faithfully, to the actual way we experience our life. And here at the middle, in the middle of this sequence is the bear. It's the centerpiece. Now just very, very quickly, we've seen that the land is in some ways the most important, one of the, certainly one of the most important themes of the book in this sense. And you'll see it all the way through the bear. Because the land is distinguished from the wilderness. The land is a concept um, um, that's set off from the wilderness in this sense. It represents that world that man attempts to master, to get control of, to use for himself. So over and over again, the land is set off against the wilderness. And remember, the wilderness is God's, it's nature. God made nature. The land is that which man makes. So we get these two things juxtaposed. That's at the center of the debate between Kaz and, um, and Ike in section four. We keep talking about the difference between the two of them. And we've seen, we've seen that, um, that um, one of the byproducts of this possessive stance towards the land, to, to treat it as if it's mine, to say it's mine, is that it encourages the sense of doing the same with other people. That, that that defines a way, it establishes a way of being. We see it in Lucas, he, he will not let go of the land. Um, um, he can't leave the property even though he's got more than enough money to leave. It's almost like it has a hold of him. Um, um, and the city is just an extension of that. In, in, um, in the bear, in the section in which they finally bring down old Ben, Ike and Boone have to go to Memphis to get whiskey, because they have to have their whiskey. And if you've read that closely, you know that when they get to the city, it's a dead place. It's, it's like Elliot's wasteland. The city is the modern wasteland. There's nothing going on there. When they, when they get on the train, or when they're back at camp, everybody from the city wants to know what's going on there, because that's the only place where meaningful things are going on. In the city? It's dead. It's spiritually dead. Truly. It's the wasteland. It's the modern wasteland. Um, so there's a number of ways that Faulkner sets those two things against each other. What's at the heart of, of the bear is this hunt of old Ben. And we see that what happens with old Ben is very different in what Ike and Sam do with it from what the hunters do. And we're going to see a really dark thing begin here. And then it's going to get darker in section four when we look at the ledgers. I, I want to come to it in a minute because it raises some pretty serious questions about Ike as the child of promise. Um, this theme of reading and enchantment. Remember, Ike is the child of promise. In section three at the end, when old Ben is killed, Sam dies. Ike stays with him. and. I think one of the ways we're meant to read that is that's an end of the wilderness. What happens in the middle of that, I want to look at in a minute, is that moment, you know, that when Ike relinquishes his rifle and his compass and his watch, set that off, by the way, against um, Ahab, truly. Remember, Ahab wanted to get rid of his compass and the line and the uh, quadrant, and he wanted to make his own because he wanted absolute control over that ship, absolute control. 
we saw that, how important that was for learning something about the American psyche. What does Ike do? There's that moment where he's in the glade and he realizes he can't have the gun. And, and the word that's used is he relinquished to it. He gave himself. And then he realized he couldn't go on without giving up the watch and the compass. And they're the ones that orient him. That is, he had to learn to so completely let go, let go, that he could enter into mystery. Then suddenly all the stuff of modern man had to be let go. He had to enter into this completely different relationship with the bear. And when he does, what happens? The two behold each other. I want to look at that because to me it's one of the most important scenes in the book. So this whole theme of, of reading and enchantment, Ike is the child of promise. Ike begins this quest with these, with these dreams. Remember what Faulkner describes when he was a young boy, seven, eight, he had these dreams where the bear loomed. And then he suddenly realizes the bear, they're there in reality. But shortly after that, a couple of years later, he's dead. So how do we describe this movement from enchantment to how are we to look at the, at the killing, the killing of old Ben, the death of Sam, and the death of Lion, which is this noble beast. And remember how important Sam's teaching is. He's teaching Ike, he's teaching Ike, he's teaching Ike to read, and he's teaching Lion. And remember, Ike makes it very clear, and so does Sam, when, when I'm going to read that passage too, and Despain sees Lion for the first time, he says, kill him. He'd rather get old Ben and put old Ben on Lion because Lion looks like a monster. And um, Sam's response is, um, or Despain says something like, how are you going to tame this thing? Do you remember what Sam's response was? You shouldn't forget it. Hmm? Was it something like watch? We don't want him tame. We don't want him tame. Because look, what does it mean to be tame? There's this tension going on between the wilderness and the land. To be tamed means go back there. Sit in front of your television where everything's the way you want it and comfortable. And so between the land and the wilderness is this tension that, that Sam is helping Ike to come to so that he doesn't become a hunter in the bad way, that he still stands with uh, um, Sam, but that he does something nobody else does. He's the one who relinquishes the land and everything, so. But why doesn't Cass? Sam taught Cass also. Oh, good question. Anybody want to try to answer that? I would have waited on that, but I'm not surprised. Not surprised, because... <laughs> why... What's, why doesn't... And it's really... And by the way, to underscore what Shafani's saying, remember this. At the end of that chapter, when in the old people, when um, Sam has seen the spirit of the deer, and Ike sees it with him, and it ends with Kaz and Ike arguing, um, and Ike saying, I saw it, I saw it, and then Kaz saying, I saw it too. But why not Kaz? Good, really good question. By, by the way, this is the heart of Plato's Republic, right at the heart of Plato's Republic. 
because it doesn't take with everybody. Right? I mean, well, well, put it this way. Did Kaz give up the land when he was, had an option of... I mean, the, 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 huh? Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's new. I think Ike is. I mean, Ike is an absolutely isolated figure. I'm going to put it this way: that that Sam, <laughs> you're going to laugh. Sam is teaching Ike poetry, and it doesn't take. Not everybody is going to, an end in itself, a good in itself, not for some other reason, you know, the wealth, the pravata. So, so those are some of the major concerns that I think that Faulkner's dealing with is, as we're moving through the novel and right now at, at its center, the, the sorts of things that are coming into focus there. The importance of education, the importance of reading, what's happening to Ike, what he's learning to see that other boys clearly do not see. What are the other boys doing right now? Playing baseball. Um, what are the men doing? Killing animals, Just, you know, <laughs> shooting deer and hanging up their antlers. And Be careful how you pass this on to father. <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta say something to him. By the way, I know you don't want to talk about this now, but you talk about do we see Christ in the reading? I think that's a place where we can see Christ in the reading. The we, fact that that someone was taught by Sam and heard the message, and another oh, person yeah. heard the message yeah. and and didn't receive it. Yeah. And you know, yep. Christ with the children, and you know, you have to be a child in order to oh, yeah. appreciate the faith. Yeah, I think that's one of those. Ones. Yeah, no, I agree completely, and I'm glad. It's like the parable where the seeds fall on the ground. Yep. Yeah. yep, 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 and the mystery of it all in all of those. And why did Christ choose some people and not others? This divine choice. Why is somebody called out? And not, I mean, there's so many mysteries that line up with our faith. I'm so glad you mentioned those because this thing that I mentioned a little while ago that we should, as Catholics, we should find a support here because if you read this well, you see that, the, that Faulkner is helping us to see things lots of people don't, lots of people don't. And this mystery of why it takes or why not Kaz or, or I keep, I, I've said this to you guys, I'm a little bit shocked every week when I see you guys appearing again. <laughs> I am, I keep, why are you here? Why are you here? What is, oh, um. okay, let's let Faulkner talk. What were you going to say about this chat? Sorry, I, I, I passed over too quickly. Remember that it, in the, I don't know that we'll have time to read them, but in the beginning of the bear, it go, when it when the bear begins, Ike is 16. So we've got another frame story. It's Ike at 16, but then it goes back to when he was seven, eight, nine, and the bear was looming in his. It's, I, I may read it because the descriptions to me are just 
extraordinary. But Faulkner is describing those those years when the boy had these dreams because we get this sense of almost an avatar. Uh, um, what's the word? Um, it's not the right word, but some larger than life force in the wilderness and the bear, and they loomed and. Um, he carried that dream with him as a boy. And you know that because when he starts, he looks forward to the time when he's 10 more than any, he lives for that moment because he can join the hunters. And then he gets it and, and the very next thing, we, he gets his own gun when he's 11. I mean, we know this in kids. You know, he, when am I gonna get my gun? He wants that rifle. So there's nothing in the world that means more to him than being a hunter and killing his first deer. And so when we get the first kill in old people, he's 12, we know how much that means. Because in the bear, Faulkner goes back in time and, and we learn what Ike has been doing and what Sam does with him. And, um, so he carries this dream. And the, I, I tried to put it in th that way to, em to give it the emphasis I think it deserves. There's an enchantment. And I think the enchantment is realized in that moment when Ike and old Ben stand in their, each other's presence. I want to come to that, because that to me is one of the, I think it's one of the most important scenes in all of literature. Um, and then a couple of years later, you know, they return again and again. They finally get Lion, the dog, and they bring old Ben down. Well, he began with this enchanted dream. Now he's looking at that bear, gutted. Boone kills him. Boone has his ear ripped off, practically. Lion has his guts ripped out. Sam watches it and collapses. So what began as an enchantment, the child of promise, all this goodness, it's a little bit like Moby Dick. Suddenly, it's gone. He's a numinous object, isn't he? Sorry? A numinous object. Numinous? Yeah. Yeah. Numinous object. It has that quality. Well, it's like Moby Dick. Is. Yes. Yes. For me, it's not quite, a, it's really interesting. For me, I, it's, I, I agree with you, but I don't think I usually think of um, old Ben in humanist terms, in humanal terms, that the humanist, but, and, and I do with Moby Dick, and it may just because of the magnitude of, I don't know, but I, but I agree, there's something of that with him that, it, I, I'm a little bit reluctant to use that word for him, and I'm not with Moby Dick. I'm not sure why. I think because Melville, invest a sense of the supernatural with so much in a way Faulkner doesn't. Um, Faulkner's terrain is nature and something going on there. Um, here, let's, I didn't get to wreck of the Dutchland. I know you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> I didn't have, Linda, you were supposed to remind me to do that no, this morning. Said, no, 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 not me. No. <laughs> oh God, I really, I really screwed up here. God. It's always next week. Yep, no screw up. I keep trying to keep them on. Now I have to drop something next week because they'll probably be glad if I do. I'm gonna. I'm just going to read a couple of things here because we don't have much time. Remember I told you pay close attention to Faulkner's description and his this um, ability that he has 
to describe an event in such a way that something in nature is intentional, it's life-giving, there's something going on in the natural world. That's why I'm a little bit reluctant to use the numinist on that it's not from above, it's that something in nature. Let me see if I can... Um, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to just quickly give you the pages, and I, I, you don't have to do this because you, you, some of you may not want to be as thorough as I'm trying to be. But um, Pantaloon in Black begins on page 131. You don't have to go there, but in my book, it's on 131. What is it for you guys? 129. So you're two page, roughly two pages behind mine. So I'm going to give pages. Just if you want to write them down, just write the page. But know that there's going to be probably a two-page difference. I'm going to just quickly run through a list to remind you of some of the things um, that Faulkner does that I'm suggesting that's worth looking at. Um, in Fire in the Hearth on page 38, I don't go there because I'm going to I'm going to run through this. There's that description of the coin dropping. Remember when he's digging to move his still? And he describes it as an admonitory pat from the spirit of darkness and solitude that admonitory pat as if the earth is admonishing him. How appropriate is because remember, I, Lucas is doing something illicit, illegal, he shouldn't be doing it. This admonitory pat from the, from the dirt, from the powers of... Um, Pantaloon in black on one page, page 130, Ryder is shoveling dirt and he describes it as almost as if a life force building up from below, not above, from below. Ryder walking on the dust that still holds the print of Manny's feet. Page 133, 136 and 7, Ryder is trying to approach Manny's ghost, remember, and the dog sees it. 141, um, remember when he lifts the log over his head? Faulkner describes it as if, um, how did, um, as if the wood had invested some of its primal inertia into him. So for a moment it was frozen. So nature for Faulkner is never just this inert nothing. Something is going on in the earth. It's very opposite from down, from up, down. It's from under, up. Um, writer telling the whiskey um, that the whiskey's always made it clear that he was a man. And Lucas wants, or I mean, writer wants the, the whiskey to know that he's as good a man as he is. So the whiskey is invested, is vested with personality. The opposite of this is the deputy speaking of Negroes as if they were inhuman. They, his, the humanity is taken away. And I can say, if that's true, how likely is it that the, that the deputy would see what Faulkner's seeing, that there's something important in the earth? If he can't see that there's something in humans, how can he show what Faulkner showed us, that there's something going on in the earth? And remember, I, 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 made, that, I made that comment. Where is Manny? Manny's in the earth. People return to the earth. If, if we treat the earth like it's nothing, it's as if we're saying death is nothing. I, Sam is trying to teach Ike to love that thing whose life is he's going to take 
so that he can enter into the afterlife. How else could he have seen the spirit of that deer? We have to learn to revere death. The passing back to the earth. Something will come out of the earth again. The earth is where from dust to dust. It's that from which we came, it's to that to which we'll go. The deer coming out of the sound of the rifle, remember? Again, Walter Ewell, seeing the signs, the prince, completely missing it. Unable to read, unable to read signs. Um, the bear itself, I'm going to do, do on page 185, it's that long paragraph. A corridor of wreckage and destruction beginning back before the boy was born, through which sped not fast, but rather with the ruthless and irresistible deliberation of a locomotive. The shaggy, tremendous shape, it ran in his knowledge before he ever saw it. It loomed and towered in his dreams before he even saw the unaxed woods. Is there, what a beautiful word. We're going to meet it in the trilogy. An unaxed, what does that say? It's, it's where man has not been. It's, it's where the city has not left its mark. So he's always making us aware of these two worlds. Um, unaxed wood. We charge interest. <laughs> charge interest. <laughs> See? Towered in his dreams before he ever saw the unaxed woods where it left its crooked print, shaggy, tremendous, red eyed. Not malevolent, but just big. Too big for the dogs which tried to bay it, for the horses which tried to ride it down, for the men and the bullets they fired into it. Too big. It has the, the quality of a dream that's enchanted. It, men can't harm it. You know, for all, in, in some sense, it's an, it's an anachronism. It's a sign of the wilderness itself, that the wilderness was meant to be protected. It's God's. Molly said that, remember? What page are you? 185. Um, for the men and bullets they fired into too big for the very country which was its constricting scope. Mm -hmm. It was as if the boy had already divined what his senses and intellect had not encompassed yet. That doomed wilderness whose edges were being constantly and punily gnawed at by men with plows and axes who feared it because it was wilderness. We've got to get control of it. I mean, myriad and nameless, even to one another in the land where the old bear had earned a name and through which ran not even a mortal beast, but an anachronism, indomitable and invincible, out of an old dead time. In some ways, it seems to me it's resonating of Eden. It's to go back to a condition in which man did not possess the land. Um, let me stop there. there. I could read more, but I just wanted to give you a sense of those are his descriptions that, that he keeps making us aware that there's something more in nature. Um, How to finish the line. Sorry? How to finish the line. You stop the suit. <laughs> you, you go ahead. <laughs> a 
phantom epitome and apotheosis of the old wildlife. Apotheosis. That's the word that I wanted. Apotheosis. I thought it was. <laughs> thanks, thanks. This is getting scary. Scary. <laughs> scary. I'm in your mind. Yes. That's what's scary. Or I'm in yours, or both. Let's hope it's both. Okay, let's, um, here, I want to... Um, Um, page um, for the um, opening section of the bear we're getting these descriptions of Sam teaching Ike how to hunt and here, here's the crucial thing because this, you know this theme of reading is not small for me I want you to think about this because it's really we won't have time to go over it in the reading Sam's teaching has brought Ike to a point where he can read prints that the, that the hunters cannot. Later in, the, in this opening section, he reaches a point where he goes out hours before the men get up, gets up, he goes into the woods and tracks, and he got so good that he could go to a place where the lair was and wait for the animal to return to kill it. Um, he's learned to read prints. He, he's learned to distinguish between the voices of the dogs we know that he can see meaning in prints that the Walter Ewell can't. So he's learning to read. And, and um, during that period, when remember when they find the coal missing? I can't go through the readings because we don't have time. Remember when they, when they found the coal missing? And Major Despain's first conclusion was, Old Ben did it. And he's furious at Old Ben because he said, Old Ben broke the laws. He gets very self-righteous. He says he abrogated the laws. He's really touchy about it. He says he, he violated Ike is watching Sam, and he knows that Sam knows that it's not old Ben. Then days later, they find the, the carcass of the colt, and they find Prince. And Despain says, and Compson says, it's a wolf or a panther. Now, stop and think about this. And, and Ike, Ike is watching Sam, and he knows that Sam knows that it's neither. So Ike is watching his mentor distinguish himself from the men who think they have the answers. These men have the answers. They, that is, they're learning to read signs. And I'm thinking about this in physics, in medicine, in law, in psychology. Take it wherever we will. Educated people reach a point where they think they know how to read signs. These men are making conclusions that we know are not right. Sam's Sam's not saying anything, but Ike is learning from his skepticism, his waiting. Okay? So, Ike is learning to read tracks. He's learning to read voices. He can distinguish the separate, the, the distinct voices of the dogs, and he can even distinguish the absence because he knows that lion never growls until he's got the animal by the throat. So he can hear when he's not there. And he's learning to see faces. Um, there's that wonderful line where um, um, on page 206, I guess it's 205, I'm not sure what you got. They returned to camp and had breakfast and came back with guns and the hounds. Afterwards the boy realized that they'd also should have known then what killer the colt as well as Sam Fathers did, what killed the colt. But that was neither the first nor the last time he'd seen men rationalize 
rationalize from and even act upon their misconceptions. They're missing everywhere. He's learning to see how men rationalize. The fact that he would use that word. Ike is learning to see things in another way, different from the way men do. Um, now let me go back just for a moment. Um, and, oh, and, and I forgot. And he also learned from Sam how to educate Lion. Because remember, Despain and Compton say, tame him. And Sam says, we don't want him tame. And then Ike learns what Sam does with Lion because he wants him, I don't know how to put this, he does not want him tamed. He does not want him pacified. He wants him to keep the courage he had as an animal, um, but not use it violently against men. Um, Think about how hard it would be for a parent struggling to avoid those kinds of extremes. You, you, want a, you want a child not to be passive and aggressive. You want a child to have courage. It's a much, much harder thing. And humility, and still go to, still go to war. Um, um, go back to, to, uh, to, to that point where Remember, he keeps returning to camp, and Sam says, you ain't got, um, you ain't looked for him right. And then finally Sam says, it's the gun. So um, he left the gun. This is on page 198. He was hunting right upwind. The Sam had taught him, but he didn't matter now. He had left the gun by his own will and relinquishment. He had accepted not a gambit, not a choice, but a condition in which not only the bears heretofore inviolable anonymity, but all the ancient rules and balances of hunter and hunted have been abrogated. He steps outside that code, that masculine code. Um, he would not even be afraid, not even in the moment when the fear would take him completely. Blood, skin, bowels, bones, memory, all of that. Go down a little bit. Sam said, be scared. You can't help that, but don't be afraid. Ain't nothing in the woods going to hurt you if you don't corner it. I want everybody to remember, this to me is an extraordinary piece of wisdom. Ain't nothing in the woods going to hurt you if you don't corner it, or it don't smell that you are afraid. A bear or a deer has got to be scared of a coward, the same as a brave man has got to be. I think we all know the truth of that, don't we? I think we feel safe in the presence of a person of courage because even if he fights, we know that it's going to be on some good ground. Be in the presence of a coward? I mean, I've watched men who would hysterically go into battle. I'm, I'm serious, watching men who would have no fear about going. No, they would go into battle because nothing stops them. If a wild dog got in front of them, they'd run away. The presence of something wild and Frightened itself chases people away um, because they're afraid of that in others. So um, he goes back, ha having given up his gun. In the next paragraph, yeah, the next paragraph, he stood for a moment, a child ailing and lost in the green and soaring gloom of the markless, markless wilderness. Then he relinquished completely to it. 
That's that moment. I mean, I, I don't know if any of us have had it. It's just where you, I, I always associate this with the mystics, that you so completely give up everything. You give everything, you give up everything you depend on as a crutch. And in that moment, for us, you find Christ. Until then, there's something in the way. It can even be our religious practices that are in the way. He stood for a moment, a child alien and lost in the green and soaring gloom in the markless wilderness. Then he relinquished completely to it. It was the watch and the compass. He was still tainted. He had to have some control. He removed the linked chain of the one and looped along the, throng, the thong of the other from his overalls and hung them on a bush. Now he, he enters the wood and he begins to track the way Sam taught him without any help, any orientation at all. Think about how opposite this is from Ahab, too, by the way. Go down, and he did what Sam coached and drilled him as the next and last scene as he sat down on the log, the crooked print, the warped indentation in the wet ground, which while he looked at it, continued to fill with water, which means it's recent, right? Water seeping into it, so he knows he's close. Which while he looked at it, continued to fill with water until it was level, full, and the water be began to overflow and the sides of the print began to dissolve away, even as he looked up and saw the next one and moving the one beyond it, moving, not hurrying, running, but merely keeping pace with them as they appeared. St. Augustine's famous words, festina lente. Do you know that phrase, festina lente? Festina lente. Be quick, slowly. He's, he's not panicky, he's not, he's not anxious. There's no hurry, but he's moving. Castina Lente is what comes to mind, quickly, slowly. Um, but merely keeping pace with him as they appeared before him as though they were being shaped out of the thin air. There it is again, being shaped out of the thin air, one constant pace before, short of where he would lose them forever and be lost forever himself. This is so much like the mystic moment. I mean, you enter into, you, 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 you give up everything. You, you put away everything. And in that moment, it's as if you will approach fear because you will have nothing by which to orient. You, and you feel like you'll be lost forever. Because if you're there, what's there? You've given up every, everything. So you can't turn back to anything. You can't look back to anything you depend on. Um, and be lost forever himself, tireless, eager, without doubt or dread, panting a little above the strong, rapid little hammer of his heart, emerging suddenly into a little glade and the wilderness coalesced. It rushed soundless and solidified the tree, the bush, the compass, and the watch, glinting where a ray of sunlight touched them. Then he saw the bear. It did not emerge, appear. It was just there, immobile, fixed in the green and windless noon's hot dappling, not as big as he had dreamed it, but as big as he had expected, bigger, dimensionless against the dappled obscurity, looking at him, then it moved. It crossed the glade without haste, walking for an instant into the sun's full glare and out of it, and stopped again and looked back at him across the shoulder, then it was gone. It didn't walk into the woods, it faded, sank back into the wilderness without motion as he had watched a fish 
a huge old bass sink back into the dark depths of its pool. And then it begins, so it should have hated hate and feared lion, which we get numerous times. Why should he have feared and hated a lion, by the way? Why should he, the next, the opening, oh. section, okay. so he should have hated and feared lion? Why should he have hated and feared lion? Why does Faulkner keep giving us this phrase? He does it repeatedly. Because lion's going to kill him. He's the, he's the dog that they needed to bring him down. And this line appears just after this moment. Now, what happens in this moment? How do we understand this moment? How does this set him apart from the hunters? Well, you see something sacred there. Yeah. I would call this beholding. I want to I really put a stamp on this if I can. This to me is an Edenic moment. It's, it's going back to Eden. There may be something still of the fall left between the bear and Ike. You know, I don't want to make this pure, but it seems to me it's an Edenic moment. That the two of them have gone back in which they behold one another. So there's an element of respect, of dignity not lost. Um, it's no longer the hunter and the hunted, or the predator or the prey. It's a human and a creature standing in their presence, aware of the dignity they have as creatures. The lust, the desire, the wanting an object. Remember this, this whole thing of subjectivity? That it's only when we learn to enter into another as a self that we can really begin to love that person or know that person because we tend to objectize. We, all, we tend to see others as objects. We, that's what the men were doing when, when Faulkner described Ike looking at him and saying, he began to realize how much they rationalize their thoughts. They take these signs and they rationalize them. We tend to look at things, read things, signs, as objects. We don't enter into them. In this moment, it seems to me, they are aware, carry within them some sense of each other's dignity. There's no fear. And I think that's why we've got, he should have, so he should have hated and feared Lion, because Lion's going to be, when they get Lion in the picture, old Ben's going to die. So this, to me, is one of the rare moments in literature, I mean, that, that this anachronism, this great thing, and all these other things. And, and I got, was already prepared for this, because remember, Sam keeps saying to him, he's watching you. He wants to see who's new in camp. He wants to know who you are. It's as if there's some awareness in the bear of what he's, of the hunters and... So this, there's this, I don't know, how to, there's this remarkable communion. They become, for a moment, for an instant, it's like the, the effects of the fall are quieted, just a little then. Um, I want to quick, just finish here, um, very quickly. Um, they, they find, on page 208, they, they, um, they, they, well, it says three days later when they're trying to track down this, this animal that nobody knows what it is, that Sam appears in the camp one morning and he's waiting for them to wake up and then he takes them to his cottage and he shows them that he built this cage and he traps lion in it and it's this fierce dog, this Airedale Air, Air mix. On page 208, Major Despain, what in hell's name is it, Major Despain said. It's a dog, Sam said, his nostrils arching and collapsing. It's the dog, the dog, Major Spain said. 
It's good to hold old Ben. Dog the devil, Major Spain said. I'd rather have old Ben himself in my pack than that brute. Shoot him. <laughs> no, Sam said. You'll never tame him. How do you ever expect to make an animal like that afraid of you? I don't want him tame, Sam said. And by the way, when, um, when Ike is forced to go back, he doesn't want to go back. Um, he and Kaz are having this conversation again, and Kaz, Kaz says something about taming. And Ike, who's a boy, says to Kaz, we, we don't want him tame. It's the very next page. We don't want him tame. It's really interesting that he uses that we because he so completely identifies with his teacher. You know, it's, he's speaking for himself and Sam at that point. Um, on 2.11, after they come back to camp, after that um, just brief interval, Boone sees um, Sam with Lion next to him, and he goes up to him, and it, it, it's described as if he's in, in love with him. He says, can I touch him? This is on page 211. Um, and then Despain finds out that Boone is so enamored of him that he sleeps with him. <laughs> and he goes in that night, Dan Boone, Kaz said, or Kaz goes in, or Despain sends him, because Despain is the one, Thompson and Despain are the leaders. McCasin goes to him and says, get that dog out of here. He's got to run old Ben tomorrow morning. How in the hell do you expect him to smell anything fainter than a skunk after breathing you all night? Um, go on over. I've, um, I've got a um, page 216 at the end of section 2. Finally, Lion trees old Ben, or corners him. And old Ben is there, and... Boone has a shot at it, and he shoots five times. And we get this on page 1, 216. It's the very end of section 2. Um, Boone was riding a mule, and Boone had never been known to hit anything. He shot at the bear five times with his pump gun, touching nothing. And old Bell Ben killed another hound and broke free. They, they go off again, but that night they come back um, um, with no success. This time, Boone didn't even curse. He this is when they returned that night. He stood in the door muddy, spent his huge gargoyle face tragic and still amazed. I missed him, he said. I was in 25 feet and I missed him five times, but we have drawn blood, Major Despain said. General Compson drew blood. We have never done that before. But I missed him, Boone said. I missed him five times with Lion looking right at me. <laughs> God. Never mind, Major Despain said. It was a damn fine race, and we drew blood. Next year, we'll get General Compson or Walty to ride Katie. Who finally writes Katie? Ike. Ike does, yeah. They put Ike, and Compson has that wonderful line to Kaz when he does. Um, Walter, ride Katie, and we'll get him. Then McCasin said, where's Lion, Boone? I left him at Sands, Boone said. He was already turning away. I ain't fit to sleep with him. <laughs> and so he should have hated and feared Lion. There it is again. I want to just quickly turn. Um, after they get back from the trip to um, Memphis to get the whiskey, um, Despain and Compson says that they'll let Ike ride um, old Katie. Oh, damn. There's that, oh, I'm missing it, sorry. There's that line there. Um, oh, 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 oh. Um, 
Here, go on over. I just want to read the end when they when they get banned. Um, on page um, two, my two thirty. This time the bear didn't strike. This, uh, Boone and Lion are pursuing him through the brush. You know the Boone's on the mule and and and. Um, I hope you've all read this. If you if you have, you know that he's almost more concerned for a lion than anything else. He watches him, he follows him, and it's not just as a hunter watching a dog. It's it's as somebody who loves that creature because he's he's so enamored of his power and strength. This time the bear didn't strike him down. It caught the dog. So they're rushing towards him, and suddenly lion makes this bound and grabs Ben by the throat. When Boone sees that. Instinctively, he rushes in. That, that's the animal he loves. This time the bear didn't strike him down. It caught the dog in both arms, almost lover-like. The sexual axe has been connected with this right along. Remember when Boone went down to pet lion, he's described as petting a woman, and then he says, no, it's reverse. It's as if Boone had been made into a woman by lion's strength. So there's a sexual undertone to this. Um, he caught the dog in both arms, almost lover-like, and they both went down. He was off the mule now. He drew back both hammers of the gun, but he could see nothing but moiling. Um, go down a few lines. Then Boone was running. The boy saw the gleam of the blade in his hand and watched him leap among the hounds, hurling them, kicking them aside as he ran, and fling himself astride the bear as he had hurled himself into the mule. His legs locked around the bear's belly, his left arm under the bear's throat where lion clung, and the glint of the knife as it rose and fell. It fell just once. For an instant, they almost resembled a piece of statuary. The clinging dog, the bear, the man stride its back, working and probing the buried blade. Then they went down, pulled over backward by Boone's weight, Boone underneath. <coughs> it was the bear's back which reappeared first, but at once Boone was astride it again. He had never released the knife, and again the boy saw the almost infinitesimal movement of his arm and shoulder as he probed and sought. Then the bear surged erect, raising with it, man, with it the man and the dog too, and turned and still carrying the man and the dog. It took two or three steps towards the woods. It's almost like it's retreating to you know, its habitat that he wants to get away to the woods. Um, on its hind feet as a man would have walked and crashed down. It didn't collapse, crumple. It fell all of a piece as a tree falls so that all three of them, man, dog, and bear, and notice there's no punctuation. Man, dog, and bear, as if they're one. It's a, a wonderful union. I mean, there again is an instance of a writer not letting grammar get in the way. I mean, he, he, grammar is supposed to serve. He's doing things not mechanically, he's trying to capture something in language. He and Tenny's Jim ran forward. Boone was kneeling at the bear's head. His left ear was shredded. His left coat sleeve was completely gone. Together they prized lion's jaws from the bear's throat. Easy, goddammit, Boone said. Can't you see his guts are all out of him? The first thing Boone does in this instance is want to go for the doctor. And I, it's pretty clear that he wants to go for lion. And it's at that moment that they all realize that Sam's down. And then Despain says no, and he asks Tenny to go off to the, get the doctor quickly because Sam's down. Boone's 
hurt. Boone's giving no thought to himself right now. So he goes off to get the doctor. I want to just read this quickly on page 235, the paragraph that begins the sawmill doctor. The sawmill doctor from hoax was already there. Boone would not let the doctor touch him until he'd seen the lion. He wouldn't risk giving lion chloroform. He put the entrails back and sewed him up without it while Major Despain held his head and Boone his feet. But he never tried to move. He lay there, the yellow eyes open upon nothing, while the quiet men in the new hunting clothes and in the old ones crowded into the little airless room. These are the men from the city. It's almost as something real happened here as over against what goes on in the city. Crowded into the little airless room, rank with the smell of Boone's body and garments and watch. Then the doctor cleaned and disinfected Boone. So they took care of Lion, which is what Boone wanted, and then the dog. Um, <coughs> very quickly. Um, they're going to leave to go back to town, and Ike wants to stay with Boone. Boone's going to stay. McCaslin won't. Remember, Kaz is in charge of him. He's been raising him. Cass says he's not going to stay, he's going back to school because that's where he belongs. And Ike, in grief, he says, i got to stay, i got to stay, i got to. He says again and again. Finally, on page 240, <coughs> Compson says, all right, General Compson said, you can stay. If missing an extra week of school is going to throw you so far behind, you'll have to sweat to find out what some hired pedagogue put between the covers of a book Education and reading is absolutely at the center of this story. What Ike is learning that clearly other people don't know. Pedagog, put between the covers of a book, you better quit altogether. And you shut up, Kaz, he said, though McCaslin had not spoken. You got one foot straddled in, here's your answer, Stefani. I mean, direct, sort of been there all, but here's, here it's, it's made explicit. You got one foot straddled in a farm and the other foot straddled into a bank. You ain't even got a good hand hold where this boy was already an old man long before you damn Sardaruses and Edmonds invented farms and banks to keep yourselves from having to find out what this boy was born knowing. As if that kind of knowledge got in the way of what was instinctively in him. Um, before the Sardis and Edmonds invented farms and banks to keep yourselves from having to find out what this boy was born knowing and fearing too, maybe, but without being afraid, that could go 10 miles on a compass because he wanted to look at a bear none of us ever got close enough to put a bullet in and looked at the bear and came the 10 miles back um, on the compass in the dark. Maybe by God, that's the why and the wherefore of farms and banks I reckon you still ain't going to tell what it is. But he could not, I, I've got to stay, he said. So he stays. Let me take a minute. This is really an amazing passage. We always think of banks and farms as investment things. You know? What Compton is saying is that even if they don't know it, bankers and farm owners get into that business because of some enchantment <laughs> getting something, even if they've lost touch with it. Is that clear? I clearly hasn't. But, but it's, as if, it's as if that's the reason for banks and farms, even if people don't know it. That somewhere deep and down there, there's this enchantment that people have lost. 
because of the business world or the work world or um, does, it kill, does it kill that instinct? I mean, the fact is, he's in touch with the instinct, instinctual life. Yeah. Where the others aren't. Civilization gets in the way. Yeah. This is Freud and civilization and his discontents, really. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's really important to remember it. It's I think it's here because of Sam that that Sam was Ike's teacher. I mean, he's helped him to stay close to all of this. Um, when they leave and then they come back and Macaz sees, they go straight to the gravesite, Macazlin sees Boone and Ike next to each other, next to the grave, Sam's gravesite. And they weren't sure that whether they'd come back and find Sam alive or dead because when they left him he seemed okay, um, although clearly he quit. I mean that was it. When old, Bear, when old Ben dies, Sam dies. I think the point here is what does he have to live for anymore when old Ben dies? Um, Sam's a hunter, but there's something in Sam that's that doesn't hunt the way the white men do. You know, there's that love of the life that they take, and they, to watch old Ben die was, I think, took everything out of him. As soon as Cass sees him, he, he jumps off the horse in anger as quickly as he can. and goes right at Boone. Boone doesn't twitch because Boone could easily defeat him. But Kaz isn't intimidated. He's, he's so caught up in the moment, he goes right at him on page 242. Um, he goes directly at him. Kaz majored to Spain said, then he said, boom, you boom. They go at it, the two of them are holding each other. Turn it loose, Boone said. He's, he's got the rifle. You damn little spinning, Boone said. Don't you know I can take it away from you? Don't you know I can tie it around your neck like a damn cravat? Yes, McCaslin said, turn it loose, Boone. These two men are not going to give way. That's how much this means to both of them. This is the way he wanted it, he told us. He told us exactly how to do it, and by God, you ain't going to move him. So we did it like he said, and I've been sitting here ever since to keep that damn wildcat, those, the damn wildcats and vermits away from him. And by God, and McCaslin had the gun. Down slanted while he pumped the, he pumps all the bullets out, almost in one instant. Did you kill him, Boone, he said. Then Boone moved, he turned, he moved like he was still drunk and then for a moment blind too. One hand out as he blundered towards the big tree and seemed to stop walking before he reached the tree so that he, he plunged, fell forward, flinging up both hands and catching himself against the tree and turning until his back was against it. Backing with the tree's trunk, his wild, spent, scoriated face and the tremendous heave and collapse of the chest. Remember, every, every man in this story has faced an overwhelming moment like this and he can't breathe. Ryder, Ike has faced it a number of times. Boone here. He's so distraught. He loves Sam. Uh, and he loved Lion. And they're both gone. And um, this is clearly an emotional crisis for him. I mean, the things that have meant most to him are now gone. And the tremendous heave and collapse of his chest, McCaslin following, facing him again, never once having moved his eyes from Boone's eyes. He's not letting up. The fact that Boone is distraught doesn't faze him at all. Did you kill him, Boone? No, Boone said, no. Tell the truth, McCaslin said. I would have done it if he'd asked me to. Then the boy moved. He was between them, facing McCaslin. The water felt as if it had burst and sprung not from his eyes alone, but from his whole face like sweat. Leave him alone, he cried. God damn it, leave him. This is the boy. So 
I mean, it's obviously it's a uh, it's a, a intensely emotional scene. I want to leave it here, just sort of a couple of comments. That this brings to to a close the, the sort of whole hunt aspect of Old Ben. Um, but it marks a close to what began with the boy's enchantment in his dream. And um, it, it marks an end to old, um, to old Sam, old Ben, Sam, to Sam Fathers, to old Ben the, the bear. Um, and in some sense, it's a serious question whether it doesn't mark the end of the wilderness. Because the, all the scenes that we get are men now encroaching. Everybody's coming in from town. The wilderness is shrinking. We will see this reinforced at the end of the very last section because ben, old Boone will be at the tree unloading or trying to put together the rifle because it's broken apart. So this whole, this is not small, this whole manly way of life for men is gone. There's nothing to test men anymore. What's Ike's place going to be in this? We're back in the tamed land. And we've seen the cost of it, that, that all the men from the city come here to, because there's nothing to do in the city. I mean, think about it. People go to nightclubs with strobe lights and drink. God, something was happening here. There, man was engaging nature. He was fighting himself. The hunters did it. And even if they did it in an incomplete way, it helps to show more clearly the difference between them and Ike and what he does. Because we've got this Edenic moment with Ike and the bear. How many men? None of the men got, carry that moment. It's in Ike. He's got it. He's going to carry it to his death. So right now, the, the, the major part of the romance and adventure is over. The promise, the enchantment seems done. The reason I'm putting it this way is because in, in section four, we're going to get involved in this debate between Kaz and Ike over this question of whether he should, Ike should have relinquished the land. And he's going to make clear he shouldn't. But what happens in the midst of this, and it has to do with reading, how we read those ledgers and, and art, because these two men wrote it down. It's in writing. And certain things appear that raise questions for Ike about what actually happened with old McCaslin. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to give it away. But it's on the basis of what he discovers there, because the things he discovers are so horrific. We, what we've been experiencing, I mean, even the death of old Ben was a noble death. I mean, even losing Sam is noble. What we're going to discover in the ledgers is horrible. It's at least as horrible as anything we saw in Moby Dick. And I think it's part of the reason that Ike relinquishes the lamb, because his response to what he discovers is he does not want that curse going forward. He's going to relinquish it. So one of the questions hanging over the book is, should he have relinquished it? Because by relinquishing it, it went to Kaz. Should Ike have kept it because he could have done something better with it? Or if he kept it, would he have gone under like Kaz? So we've got some pretty heavy questions that are going to come out of this last section of the bear. Is that clear? You've got a question? No? Just, just an answer to a question that hasn't been asked yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad Suzanne's going to be here next week. Um, here, hold on before you. Read section four well. 
It's not an easy section to read, but there's a lot, and it's funny, and the punctuation is gonna be a little bit of a problem, but Faulkner's doing wonderful things. You have fun with it. I mean, he's doing something strange, so. Okay. You have, so this is what you have to look forward to. Next week you get to read ledgers. What more could you ask for? Say? You know, that it's partly 